hold over my being absolute sway. Filled with my spirit, filled with thy spirit, then all shall see Christ only always living in me. Should be our prayer every day. Should be our desire every morning. That when people see us, they see Christ. So thankful to be back here with you this morning. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering. I know that it may seem trite or repetitive when I say that when I come up here to preach, but I want to tell you the thing that I look forward to most during the week is this time and this moment with you, not just to hear me preach, but all of it, the, the whole thing. So I'm so thankful for this time. Uh, I'm more exceedingly grateful um, because if Blake and Stephen preach too much, you might find it easier to replace me. So I'm going to get back up here and prove that I can still do it. I'm thankful that I'm thankful that Blake and Stephen both prove uh, their proof of continuing growth and sanctification, their proof of growth in their ministry. Um, I've told you this before or something like it. Um, at the beginning of our church, it sort of, this may just be sort of self-egocentric or whatever, but it felt like I was leading and like Blake and Stephen were helping and you guys were, the people that were here were involved. But as it's gone along, Blake and Stephen have become pastors. Uh, early on, they became pastors and they have been great pastors for our church. And as time has gone on, uh, they have both they have gone from pastors who teach to pastors who can preach the word. And um, I have utmost confidence on Sunday mornings and in missional communities and other things like that because um, the product, and by product I mean men preaching the Bible, is good. And also I, which kind of relates to our verse today, I don't typically get um, persuaded to feel like the sky is falling every time something negative happens in our church or every time something too positive happens in our church because I look at the leadership of our church and that includes me and I'm not saying it in a braggadocious way but I look at the leadership of our church and I know that no matter what is happening on the outside and even what is happening on the inside that through godly and consistent leadership this church is going to do great things going to continue to do great things and is going to thrive in this community. And I hope that you have the same confidence uh, as I do. And if not in me, at least in Blake and Stephen. Um, but it gives, me, it gives me great assurance about the trajectory of our church. And also it gives me peace when uh, I take times to rest or to recoup or just to allow uh, Blake and Stephen to bring a good word to you. Um, so I'm so grateful for that. Blake says that every time he gets up, he says, because he wants you to know this for real, he says, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I don't take this for granted. So as long as he's saying that, when they're done preaching, I'm going to get up and say how thankful I am for them for preaching. Uh, so there we are. Today we're going to be back in 1 Peter. We're going to be back in 1 Peter chapter 4. Stephen did an excellent job uh, of 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. The next two weeks, we're going to look at 7 through 11, and we're going to speak on Christian action in the end times. Before we do that, uh, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to meet with us 
to intercede on our behalf through the Spirit of God to teach us through his word. God, you are so good to us, uh, better than we deserve. You give us grace, you give us kindness, you give us patience, you give us love. All of those things you give us and you ask us to give each other. Lord, help us to be gracious and loving and kind to each other as we all grow, as we're all on different rungs of the ladder. We're all trying to pursue you. Help us to be gracious and kind and loving in that process. Help us to be patient and gracious and kind and loving to ourselves. To show grace to ourselves when we stumble, when we fall. To seek forgiveness, to repent of our sins, and to trust in you. God, teach us from your word today. Help your word reign true in our life. Help it to be the final arbiter of all decisions in our life. Help your word be the lamppost that guides us to Jesus Christ. That helps us to honor the Father and led by the Spirit of God. We love you. We praise you. We give you this sermon today. It's all yours because you spoke it first and you spoke it better. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Stephen set us up really well for our text today. Today is a continuation of, uh, of what we uh, listened to and heard uh, two weeks ago. The major thought that has been running through my head from what Stephen said a few weeks ago is this. Leave, uh, it's, it's this concept of leaving sin where it lies. I have thought about this quote uh, multiple times over the last few weeks. Sin, uh, over the last few weeks, sin had dominion in your life long enough. So wherever God redeemed you, whatever position, whatever point God redeemed you from, sin reigned enough and let it die. Sin has had its reign. Whether you were saved when you were 5 or 55 or whether it's 95, we should give our all to leaving sin behind. All of this is accomplished because we are Christians and we can and will live in the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God reforms us, he, rede he redeems us, he reforms us, he makes us into a new creation that cannot cohabitate with an old life. It cannot carry that dead body around. We are dead to the flesh. Just as Christ died to the flesh, so we have died. And just as Christ has resurrected like we saw so eloquently and so beautifully last Sunday, we have risen again to new life. Verses 5 and 6 from what Stephen spoke about last week really transition us to this text today. So I'm going to read those in, uh, I'm going to read those along with what the passage we're going to study today really this is one long sermon on chapters, or verses 7 through 11. We'll get through about verses 7 through 9 today. If you would, open with me to our main text today. That's 1 Peter 4, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to end in verse 9, and we're going to focus on verses 7 through 9 today. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those <clears throat> excuse me, who are dead. That 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter starts verse 7 off, interestingly, he says, the end of all things is at hand. It's interesting what Peter is saying here, and it is what every Christian generation has believed since the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that is that the end of time is imminent. And just because it hasn't happened to this point doesn't mean that they are wrong. The end could come at any moment, at any time, and without warning. As a matter of fact, that is what the New Testament tells us will happen. It'll come at any time, at any moment, and without warning. But here, Peter is not telling his readers that Christ is going to come back again in their lifetime, or even right after he dies, or right after his lifetime, Peter is telling them something different altogether. Peter is saying something that I have said to you uh, because of Peter, and you should take it to heart. Christ, and, and really hear me, because uh, if you have a if you have a um, a weird eschatology, which is the study of the end of times, you might not think this way, but you should either way. And if you have a weird eschatology, it's probably because that's all you've been taught, and, and I will teach you something different over time. So um, just enjoy that. Okay, so, so Peter is saying something that I've said to you, and I think the Bible says, and I think that you should take to heart. Christ accomplished what was left to be done in salvific history through his life, through his ministry, through his death, and through his resurrection. So you need to hear this. Jesus the life of Jesus began the end times. The end times began with the life of Jesus. It's very important that you understand this. From creation to the fall to the promises of Abraham to Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and a few more things in between, most of the major things that, have, that are going to happen in salvific history have happened. As a matter of fact, the only dominating major act that is left to happen, major act that is left to happen, is the return of Christ. So Peter is saying something that I've said to you and you should take to heart. Christ has accomplished the work that was supposed to be done and he began the end times. We aren't in the end times because of earthquakes. We aren't in the end times because of wars or rumors of wars. We aren't in the end times because of the depravity of society. We are in the end times because of Christ, the fulfillment of God's greatest promise. Therefore, Christmas and Easter are more proof of the end times than war in Syria or war in the Middle East. Christmas and Easter are greater proof of the end times than John Hagee and all of his charts and graphs and numbers, or than some Bible code that does not exist. There is one more work to be accomplished, and that is the great return of our Lord and Savior, our great 
king. And for that, I would tell you, just like Peter does, the end of all things is at hand. Friends, time is short. Time is precious. It is fleeting, and we must do something with that knowledge. So today, I want to start uh, what I think should be probably a two-week sermon, maybe three, but probably two-week sermon on on really responding with Christian action in the end times. Responding with Christian action in the end times. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts with some questions from verses 7 through 9. The first thought is this. The end times is at hand. So my question to you is, how does that knowledge impact your commitment to the Lord. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now I don't want to sound like a fanatic or the guy that walks major city streets saying repent for the end is near. But can I tell you something? Jesus is coming and he is coming soon. It may not be in your or my lifetime But it certainly will happen, and in the scheme of all existence, it will happen quickly. Now, you might not see how this relates, but I hope you do. I am a young earth believer, and if you don't know what that means, it means exactly what it says, that the earth is not as old as people say it is. And for, for some of you, that might be naive or it might sound dumb, but I believe that Uh, That's what the Bible teaches. And certainly scientists can theorize about the age of the earth, but they cannot prove it as fact, their theories as fact. Now, I'm a young earth believer. Like, I believe that the earth and the created order has existed for less than 10,000 years and probably significantly less. But even more than that, I am an even younger Jesus return believer, okay? I don't think we will get... If you subtract the 2,000 years since Jesus, that may be about 8,000 years. I don't think we're getting 8,000 years until Jesus returns. Now that thought, the thought of Jesus, the immediacy of Jesus' return, the thought that he started the end times, coupled with what we know about the brevity of our own lives, should cause us to respond in a positive way that lends positive actions towards following Jesus as Lord. I think that knowledge should greatly impact our day-to-day behavior. Like we, like we see the illustration of, the, of the, the return of the Lord, like the virgins who trimmed their wicks and brought enough oil for the wedding feast. Like those who are spoken of in Luke that, they, that said they were ready to stand before the Son of Man. Peter gives us some indicators of how the knowledge of the end should impact us and our commitment to the Lord. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. He literally is saying the knowledge of the end times should be met with sanity and and a clear head. It should be met with sanity and a clear head. 
Is that how you normally feel when seeing all the things that are going on around you in the world? All of the terrible things that the Bible says must happen before the return of Jesus. Do you meet those things in a sane and sober mind? All of the changes in the culture, the erosion of the church through the prosperity gospel or easy believism and a host of other problems all around us. Is that how you meet those things? Peter says, because of Jesus, we have come to a place where the end could happen at any moment. So don't act crazy when you start seeing end time start sort of things. Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that the return of Jesus would happen tomorrow. And he said, I would plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. Luther's point is not that the end wouldn't be important or that the end, the return of Jesus wasn't important to him. Luther's point was that the gospel had changed him in such a way that he was already living as if tomorrow was the end. This is ultimately what Peter is saying. He's saying live your life now as if the end could happen tomorrow so that the thought of the end and all that comes with that doesn't drive you insane. If we knew with certainty that the necessary work had been fulfilled today and that Jesus' return was happening tomorrow, how much would you have to get your life in order to be ready for Christ to return? How much would you have to do? Because the fact is that we live as if we have so much time. And we do have so much time until we don't. We live live as if the end is something that will happen in our grandchildren or great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren's lifetime. And it is until it isn't. The end of all things is at hand, and we, should, we shouldn't have some massive to-do list to get ready for it. Our daily lives should be surrendering to the Lord, a commitment to Him that is ready at any moment, so that if we knew with certainty that tomorrow Jesus would return, what we would plan to do tomorrow is plant a tree and pay our taxes. Because that's all we have to get in order. When I think about this, I think about Ellie's commitment, my daughter Ellie's commitment to getting our family on America's Funniest Home Videos. (laughs) Ellie has had one dream in her life and one dream only, and that is to record a funny moment of our family doing something incredibly stupid so that we can be on America's Funniest. I'm sorry to embarrass you, but this is funny. America's Funniest Home Videos. But in order to do that, Number one, your family must be interesting, and I don't think we're quite there. And secondly, you must record everything. You must be ready to record everything. Listen, I have a camera on this, and it took me like five seconds to get it out of my pocket. I have a camera on this phone that is better than the one that took my wedding pictures and my graduation photos. And yet, if I'm not ready with it, I miss the moments. And for some reason... I can get out my phone at a moment when someone's calling, but when I'm trying to take a picture, it takes 10 minutes. When the last trumpet sounds, you don't get to ask the Lord to hold on for a minute while you organize and order your life. We don't set up the moment that the Lord returns like we've tried to do in our family, set up funny moments. You don't set up the moment that the Lord returns just so you can catch it at the right time. So we must always be diligent. 
We must always be prepared. Peter adds to this logic of sane and sober preparedness. He says, you must be sane and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We know from other passages that our prayers will be hindered when we are not walking in the Spirit and we're not walking in faith, but this is not really what Peter's saying here. Peter is saying that the effectiveness of your prayer life in these crazy last days depends on your sanity and sober-minded thinking about what is going on around you. It's not just that your prayers are hindered when you're not walking in the Spirit of God. It is that you don't know how to pray or what to pray when your mind and your focus is not sane and sober-minded. You're scattered and scurried and, and disconjointed. Your ability to meet the majority of life Life's challenges head on and with a clear head determines the effectiveness of your prayers. Have you ever met people that seem unaffected by anything? Oh, your tire just blew out. It's okay. My dad taught me how to change a tire. Your house is on fire. Isn't that what insurance is for? There are people who are just unaffected by anything. What type of response do you usually see from these people uh, when life sort of gets troublesome or tumultuous or, or, or crazy? Is it, is it frantic? Is it scattered? Is it irrational? Have you also met people who are affected by everything? Every small problem in the day, every negative word about them, every piece of bad news. When I think about these people, it reminds me of a mouse running around in a crowd of people. The people don't know that they're there and they're walking and you can, you can see it in video. I've seen it in person. Mouse just like bouncing off of different feet, running around, all scattered. Every little feet, every little foot for the mouse presents imminent death. When the reality is that those are just obstacles to be acknowledged and avoided and not something that causes us to scurry, that causes the mouse to scurry around in circles. Sometimes we fear so much of everything that instead of looking for a way out, we just run to the next problem. How do these type of people usually respond to troublesome situations? Are they clear-headed? Are they measured? Are they rational in their response? The experience and knowledge of trusting in the Lord over lengths of time should make us sane and sober-minded and will greatly increase the effectiveness and precision of our prayers. Last night, our power went out for a literal second. I mean, a literal maybe a millisecond. And Millie lost her mind. So I had her come and sit in my lap, and we talked about it, and she told me all the things that could happen in the dark. My noisemaker won't work at night, and I, won't, I can't sleep without my noisemaker. I can't sleep without a light. What am I going to do? And then she asked me why well, I tried to like sort of deflect and resolve all of those major problems. She asked me if I was scared or if grown-ups got scared. And I said, I said no, we don't get, I mean, of, of the dark. And I said, no, we don't, we don't get scared when the lights go out uh, because we've seen it before. And I told her, sometimes we get scared, but not usually. And she asked why grown-ups don't get scared. I told her that it was because we know that the lights usually come back on. 
and that there's nothing in the dark that can hurt us. Isn't it true about those who trust in the Lord? Through experience, you know that the lights always come back on and the darkness can't hurt you because God has won through Jesus Christ. The people with the greatest prayer lives are the people with the greatest dependence on God. And it's not because they have some strong prayer life. It's not because they're more hyper-spiritual than you. It is because they have learned to trust the Lord. They have learned to depend on Him. And when you trust in the Lord and you depend on the Lord, every moment, every troublesome time in your life is not an end-of-the-world moment. Because the God who has conquered everything is your God. And it should elicit from us a general, sane, and sober-minded response. It should elicit from us at least sort of this even, level-headed mentality about most things. Now, I know that there are some overwhelming things that it would elicit a natural, terrified, crazy, whatever response in anyone. But about most things... We should be sane, we should be sober-minded, we should be clear-headed, we should think things through. When we are sober-minded, when we are sane in our thinking, our prayers are clear, they're concise, and they're specific. When we are scared and self-reliant, our prayers are selfish, they're repetitive, and they're scattered. The end of all things is at hand. Don't be scared. Be prepared by trusting in the Lord. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but it just happened. Don't be scared, but be prepared by trusting in the Lord. I have one more question, one more statement, and one more question based on that statement that I want to ask you. The end of all things is at hand. How does that impact your love for the church? Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The end of all things is at hand. Be sane and sober-minded so you can have effective prayers, so you can navigate this world without being tossed to and fro. But even above that, love earnestly. This has been true throughout all of Christianity, but love is the primary work that comes out of your life from salvation in Jesus Christ. Love is the primary work. Our salvation began through his great love for us, and it will be most effectively and beautifully demonstrated in our great love for him and our great love for others. This has been a thought that has been true throughout all of Christianity. I'm not making this up. Love one another, for love is from God. This is my commandment, that you love one another. That I just kind of sang that in my head from that song. That your joy may be full. If you don't love, then you don't know God. These are all Bible verses, by the way. Love one another just as I have loved you. By this you will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Owe one another nothing except love, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. 
Love one another, for love is from God. The law and the prophets are summed up into these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This has been the message of God from the beginning. But why is Peter emphasizing it here? I think Peter is emphasizing it here because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12. Jesus warned his disciples that in the last days, love will grow cold. Love will grow cold. Are we not seeing this now? We essentially live in a graceless society. Everything you have ever done before that was attached to the internet follows you all through life. You make one public mistake that is big enough, and at least from a public perspective, your life is over. Grace, forgiveness, and therefore love might be at its coldest temperatures yet. If love grows colder as the time of Jesus draws near, then I would like to ask you, what will, if love in the world grows colder as the time of Jesus draws near, what will be the most distinguishing characteristic of someone who follows Christ? What will be the most distinguishing characteristic of a life changed by Jesus? Will it be big church buildings? Will it be budgets? Will it be events? Will it be our Bible studies or our prayer meetings? While there are places for all of these things, the thing that will differentiate us the most from a culture where love is grown cold is where a place and a, a, a place of hope where love is flaming hot. Where the flame of love is on full ignition. When you think about your life and the few days that you have on this earth, would it be better to prioritize love than hate? Would it be better to prioritize love than bitterness and strife than envy and anger? Would it not be better that a person feel genuinely, godly, Christ-affected love from you than other things? People can go anywhere, my friends, and get impatience. They can go anywhere and get criticism. Reviling on command. Anger at every turn. If you don't believe me, just get on social media for one day. But if there is one thing that people should expect from the church, one thing that the church should give them, should be love. It is a gift that you give the church that you don't have to have any skills to acquire. It doesn't take much work to practice, and it takes very little energy to distribute. All of those who are in Christ have it within us, and everyone needs to feel it. I am convinced that if we as a church focused on two small things, that we would change the world radically and surely, and that is giving people an answer for their search for God and giving 
people a place to feel loved. How much has that changed your life? To know the answer for God in the great I am. And to have a place where you feel loved. Peter goes on to mention two things that love, earnest love does. The first thing is it covers a multitude of sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love does not gloss over sin. It does not ignore sin like it has ever happened. It does not devalue the seriousness of sin. It doesn't make excuses for sin or try to cover up the sin itself. But what love does is it takes the sting and hurt and consequences of sin and it makes it just a little bit less. Love makes it to a place where if someone is caught up in sin and they are forgiven, that they can come back into fellowship and be one with the body of Christ. Love makes it to where when people sin, they don't feel like they have to run, but they feel like they can be embraced. It doesn't cover up sin. Sin is wrong and it separates you from God. All sin separates you from God. But sin should not, repented of sin, should not separate you from the love of God and love in the church. When a Christian friend sins, they, don't, they need you to tell them that they've sinned sometimes. But they don't, need to, they don't need you to tell you how bad they sinned. They feel that in their bones. If they're a believer, they feel what they've done is bad and it dishonors God. They need you to help them flee it. They need you to help them get over it emotionally and mentally. They need you to help them let it go. We do this by forgiving quickly. By restoring fellowship quickly when it can be done. And by as often as possible moving on as if it never happened. If God treats our sin as far as the east is from the west, if we can possibly do that as the church, we should do that. And there are times that that can't happen. When you do something that damages the church and it prevents two people or you hurt someone to a point where it prevents two people from being in fellowship with each other, there might be a choice where you have to go. That's just a simple fact of the matter. But if fellowship can be restored, it should be restored in the same manner that God has restored us to him. And that is a mindset that forgives sin so far that it will never see each other again as far as the east is from the west. I don't read this passage very often because I think it's overused and cliche, but it's the word of God and very important. But love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irrational. Excuse me. It's not irrational, but it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love covers sin. Love covers sin. Love helps in the consequences of sin. Love helps in restoration. Hatred uses sin as ammo. 
Love insists on restoration. Hatred insists on retribution. One commentator said, Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small and sometimes large sins are overlooked. Where love does not abound, suspicion abounds. Misunderstanding abounds. Conflict abounds. Irritability abounds. Quickness to anger abounds. In these last days, we should be sane, we should be sober-minded, and loving to the highest degree. I can promise you, if you accomplish these three things, you won't need to do much work to distinguish yourself from the culture because the culture is lacking sanity, it's lacking sober-mindedness, and it's lacking love. Love also does something else, and this is what we'll close with today. Love brings people in. Love is hospitable. In the times where this was written, it would have been much more important uh, than we see it now, and it may be more important to us one day, but it's, hospitality is more of something you do and not something that is necessary. It is required by God, but it is not as necessary in our culture. If the gospel was going to go forth in that time, it would have been done through people opening their homes and lives to other believers who are bringing the gospel message to that area. Hospitality is sometimes overlooked as a qualification of an elder. If you cannot be hospitable as an elder, then you shouldn't be an elder in the church. But also, it's not just a qualification of an elder. It should be a standard for all believers. New people should not have to force their way into the local body of believers. New Christians should not have to work to find someone to help them grow in faith. There should always be a flock of people ready to take other people into the faith and through the faith. And if it comes down, and I know this, some of this, some, this makes you guys cringe sometimes, but if it comes down to our church being over-hospitable and a little overwhelming, as opposed to under-hospitable and a little cold and unloving, I choose to be hospitable and overwhelming. I choose to overwhelm people with the amount of people that show love and greeting to somebody on a Sunday morning. I choose to overwhelm people with the amount of people that call somebody when they know that they're in some stuff. I choose to be overwhelming in that manner as opposed to underwhelming and maybe cold. And if you're just an introvert, you have to suck it up until you get used to it. <laughs> Hospitality is another sure sign of love and is a sign of a thriving Christian community. Love shows up in hospitality. Love shows up in our willingness and ability to use our gifts for others, which is what we'll talk about it next week. This happens willingly, Peter says. This is not something that you do with grumbling or begrudgingly. Peter says hospitality without grumbling. What is grumbling here? It is a repeated complaint about the amount of hospitality that you have to give. It is a repeated complaint. Forced hospitality is not loving. It is coercion. Voluntary hospitality with grumbling is not a blessing. Doing things for the church or with the church while grumbling is wasted hospitality. 
When you serve the church and you feel like a martyr, you are actually serving yourself with the wrong attitude. When you host an MC, when you clean the building or you serve in some other function, but all you can think about is what someone else is doing or what someone else is not doing or how much of an inconvenience it is on you, you are the problem. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is hospitable and love should be the primary work of all people who claim to be followers of Christ. How can we love better? I'll leave you with this. I think it's important. You're not going to have the ability to write all of these down. And because I'm mean, I didn't put them up here. So deal with it again. How can we love better? Leviticus 19 says, do not seek revenge or hold a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your father will not forgive your sins. That's not a suggestion as to what happens. That is actually what's going to happen. If you find yourself as an unloving and unforgiving person, it is not likely because it is because Christ is not in you. It is not likely because you're not a Christian. It is because you are not a Christian. Because a sure mark of a Christian is to forgive because they have been modeled, they have modeled forgiveness for them by the most perfect model of forgiveness. Hopefully I didn't confuse that wording too much. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians 4 says, Love walks in humility. Love walks in peace. Love walks in patience. Bearing with one another, eager to maintain humility or unity. Excuse me. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. These are all ways that we can love better. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Every one of the Ten Commandments can be met either by loving God or loving our neighbor. Every one of them. You want to love your neighbor? Don't steal from him. You want to love your neighbor? Don't take his wife. You want to love your neighbor? Be happy with what he has and not desire what he has to the point of envy. You want to love God? Put him first. You want to love God? Get your bottoms in the seat of a church. You want to love God? Don't use his name in vain. All of the commandments can be summed up in love. I want to tell you, I got emotional because when I think about you, I, I think that there are very, very rarely 
has there been a person that have come through these doors, whether they stay or not, very rarely who has said, I felt unloved. Very rarely. It happens because some people are just impossible to please. But, uh, and maybe we, maybe we messed up a few times along the way. But very rarely. So when I look at you, I am so grateful. I am so grateful that the vast majority of people that interact with you, especially in this setting, have felt accepted and loved while still challenged. A lot of people make people feel accepted and loved, but not challenged. And a church gets in the sweet spot when people feel challenged, but they still feel accepted and loved. And I want you to know I'm proud of you. I'm proud to know you. And I proudly say that you're my church. And I proudly say that you're my people. And for the most part, when someone says, do you know somebody, isn't somebody a part of your church? For the most part, I say, yeah, absolutely. No doubt. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The only person I say that about is me. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm the pastor. Be sane. Be sober-minded. Loving people. I want to ask you, though, because I think you do a great job here, but is that how the outside world would, would describe you as someone who is sane, sober-minded, clear-headed, and loving? Is that how you would be described? Is that how your friends would define you? If we did the awkward and terrible task of writing some quality, character qualities, we sat in a circle today and we wrote some character qualities about people and, and, and everybody had to write out what they thought about you and not about yourself. What, what would be the most dominating qualities, good and bad? It's in you because you are in Christ to be sane, to be sober-minded, and to be loving. It's in you because you are in Christ to look at all of the things in the world outside and say, like similarly to that picture where the dog is sitting at the chair and the restaurant's on fire behind him, similarly to that, to look at that and say, it's all sort of burning around me, but I know that God is in control. Not avoidance, not ignorance, not acting like nothing is wrong, but seeing that the end of the matter has been settled and Christ has won. Pray with me today. Lord, you're so good to us. You are so good to us. You love us in a way that we cannot describe and we can try to emulate, but we often fail. Your love is so rich and so deep that the only response from us when we have been changed and affected by that love is to give it out. After all, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if our heart is full of love, Lord, we will give that love out. If our heart is full of anything else, that will come out. We thank you right now for Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega of our love. The first and the last. We are hopeless without him. 
The sky is falling without him. But with him, all things are clear. All things are settled. Peace can be found. We praise you and we love you. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.